I'd ask you this morning if you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lord willing, as things have changed a little bit and continue to change, there'll be an opportunity to preach through a little series here, and that's what I'll be beginning this morning. It won't happen five Sundays in a row, I understand, but we'll, we'll maybe accomplish that as we go forward. But let's stand together as we read the Word of God this morning, if you're able to do that. And we're going to begin with, um, okay. we're going to begin with verse 16 in our reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to know Christ. And to no longer think of him according to the flesh, to no longer think of him as as a fleshly, worldly individual would think of him, but to think of him now as one who has been redeemed by your grace. And so, Lord, as we consider this passage this morning, we ask that you would direct our thoughts. May our minds be cleared of other things. May we set aside those those issues in our lives that might get in the way of hearing and heeding your truth. We ask, Lord, that if there are those here who do not know Christ, that this morning they would hear the truth of him and the reality of their own lives and that they would come to him in faith. And we pray, Lord, that all of us who do know Christ would be uplifted and encouraged, that our worship would be pure and holy, that, Father, we would truly consider that which is before us today. May your word have its will and way in every life, for it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. And you can be seated. And as you're seated, I'm going to make one of the most unusual requests you'll ever hear from me in the beginning of a message, and that is take your hymnals, if you would, and turn to 181. We sang this song this morning. One of the things that has been encouraged to us over the last several weeks as we have gathered together is that we, we need to worship our Lord in true understanding, with a real knowledge. And I fear too often we go through the motions of worship and, and fail to do so as we really should. And so we sing the songs, some of them we may know by heart, and we sing them by rote and we really don't think much about what we're singing. And so I want you to look at that hymn in just a little bit. We'll get back to it. But just kind of put a bookmark in it or something, lay it in the seat beside you. And let um, let me just encourage us all when it comes to this whole idea of worship and singing the praises of our Lord. 
And I'll start to do that by asking a very simple question. What happens when God's people are filled with the Spirit? When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what happens? Well, the Apostle Paul assures us that when this is the case, one of the things that will happen is that we will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We will be singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. It's interesting to me that at the beginning, or at, that in Colossians 3, 16 to 17, the apostle basically says that if we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, the same thing results as if the Holy Spirit is filling us. We read there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so, do you sing to the Lord? And I, I appreciate the way that folks here sing. I have been in places where when we sang it sounded like a solo. And um, it sounds better if Mine is not the only voice I hear. Do you sing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, however, in a knowing fashion? In other words, when we sing, are you truly worshiping? Because true worship requires understanding. Just to develop the need to sing praises to the Lord a bit further, consider that the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, is actually a songbook. It's a psalter. It's, it's a book of, of psalms, or we might think of them as hymns today, but, but those were songs that were sung by the Old Testament saints. And in these psalms, we are exhorted on many occasions to sing to the Lord. We can mention just a few of those, but uh, there are many, many more. Psalm 9, verse 11 says, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. In Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. And then this from Psalm 47, 6 and 7, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. And though such exhortations can be found throughout the Psalter, consider the psalmist as he says in Psalm 66, 1 to 4, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you, they sing praises to your name. When one considers the teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that one must recognize that the people of God are to worship Him in song. And that's what we strive to do. But again, it's not simply that we should be singing to Him in song, the question comes back to, do we just go through the motions, or is this a reality in our lives? Do we understand the words? Now, with the need to sing praises to God being established, we at times, and I just put this out there, are very much concerned that we do so and don't think about what we're singing. And I would be the first to admit that I can find occasions in my life where I would, I would be guilty of that. And so several years ago, in light of that reality, a friend of mine asked me if I would consider the challenge of preaching through the song, His Robes for Mine. 
Now understand that he was a committed Bible expositor himself, and he did not want me to preach a hymn. Rather, he wanted me to preach the Word of God from which the hymn flowed. This song, His Robes for Mine, and basically all good songs of praise to God are based in Scripture. And so I decided to take up the challenge. It'll take a little bit of time to get through this series, but we'll do some biblical expositions on each verse of the song and then the chorus as we have time to do so. I'll give you a little more about my goal here in a moment, but for now, consider the words of the first verse of this hymn. His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Thus, Chris Anderson begins the song, the hymn, and it's really a masterpiece of doctrinal truth. Indeed, there is beauty in the music, but there is even greater beauty in the words. Because the words of this song speak of the wondrous exchange whereby Jesus Christ had placed upon him your sin and mine and the repentant sinner has the righteousness of Christ placed upon him. In my library, I have a book that's titled The Great Exchange. It was written by Jerry Bridges and Bob Bevington. It consumes just short of 300 pages, and it's about one single doctrine of Scripture, and that is the doctrine of the atonement. book deals with the exchange of our sin put to the account of Christ and the fact that on the cross he paid the penalty for that sin. And it deals with the fact that when we come to him in faith, his righteousness is credited to our account. This is the greatest of all exchanges. We might ask the very, at the very beginning of the series, is this doctrine really all that important? And we must answer, it is of the utmost importance. If we get this doctrine wrong, we get the whole gospel wrong. Sinclair Ferguson wrote in the foreword to this book, The Great Exchange, he said, the great exchange addresses one of the greatest weaknesses of the contemporary evangelical church, a failure to be centered on the center of the gospel. Can that be true? I would argue that it's actually not true here, but can it be true that the church as a whole, in America at least, has begun to fail to have as its central focus the center of the gospel. That means that the church would have a, be, be involved in a failure to have Christ as its central focus. It's, it's not emphasizing the atonement like it should. It is not emphasizing this great exchange that the sin of everyone who will ever believe is placed upon Christ and the righteousness of Christ then is placed upon all who do believe. The atonement made by the Lord Jesus is at the very center of the gospel message. And so we need to understand that the atonement is to be recognized and it is to be understood correctly and we need to understand that if we are to sing about the atonement of Christ, our songs must express that atonement clearly and correctly. And to do otherwise is to hinder understanding and, in effect, to teach error. Remember those verses that we began with 
Ephesians chapter 5, we're to be teaching and admonishing one another there in Colossians. If the songs, if the words of the songs teach error, then we are not teaching one another the truth in our songs. We are teaching error. And that brings me to a twofold desire that I hope to accomplish in this series. Normally, it wouldn't even be my practice to announce any specific goals of any messages because the goals simply manifest themselves as we work our way through Scripture. And I don't want to limit this more than is necessary. I don't want you to go out of here saying, well, the only two things we can come out of with all that he's going to say from now on is, is that these two things are, are vital. Because the Lord certainly can and will do more with His Word than that. But I do think it is imperative that we know where we're going from the beginning as we go through this. Simply in some ways because this is a bit unusual. It's very unusual with me. I usually start in verse 1, chapter 1 of a book and I work my way through and if it takes 4 or 5 years, it takes 4 or 5 years and we finally get to the end of it. So what are these goals? Well, first, it's our desire to glorify the God who took sin upon Himself and who grants His righteousness to us when we come to Him in faith. The glory of God should stand at the forefront of everything we do as children of God. But second, I want us to realize more and more that we should know what we're singing and that we are only truly worshiping the Lord in song as we sing the words with understanding. I want to drive that point home to myself and to all of us. By the way, that means that there are some songs that will likely be dismissed due to the fact that they do not express correct theology. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I had a lady years ago say, you just, you just ruined that song for me. Well, I'm sorry, but it's not really expressing godly words or correct words I can think of a church that used to sing this song every time somebody made a profession of faith in Christ some of you probably can think of this song already in your minds it's called a new name written down in glory or a new name in glory but it doesn't express accurately what scripture teaches let me give you just the chorus there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine, and the white-robed angels sing the story, a sinner has come home. For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine, oh yes, it's mine, with my sins forgiven I am bound for heaven, nevermore to Rome. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, according to the song, our names are written in the book of life at the moment that we repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Revelation 13, beginning with verse 7. This, by the way, concerns the worship of the beast. He says, Also it, that is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nations, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone, listen to this, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You know when your name was written in the book of life if you know Christ? It was written in the book of life before God ever created the world. That's when it was written. There wasn't a new name written down in glory the day that you trusted Christ. It was already there. By the way, can I give you just one thought of that? This is not in my notes anywhere. But it's one of the best things I ever heard anybody else say. It's not original with me. Your name was written in the book of life if you know Christ or will ever trust Christ from before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that that means you have been on God's heart since before He created earth? And I heard someone word it this way. You have been loved by God for as long as God has been God. 
I could just stop right there. We could meditate on that for months. You have been loved by God if you know Christ for as long as God has been God. For forever. The names of the saints were written in the book of life before the world was ever created. There are no new names there. And so it's best, no matter how much we like the tomb, to avoid singing the song, it doesn't teach the correct understanding of Scripture. And we do teach, and we teach the wrong thing. I could mention another one or two, but I don't want to burst all your bubbles all at once. Some of you may lynch me for that one. Beyond the fact that we need to worship through songs that are doctrinally sound, we also need to sing with an active and knowledgeable intellect because it's only then that we, again, truly worship. In other words, we're not simply to go through the words without thinking about what we're singing. And the more we understand the meaning of the words before us, the more our hearts soar upward with worship to our great God. And so let's understand this more fully. Let's understand this great doctrine of the atonement more fully, this great exchange. And in doing so, we can more glorify the Lord. Our affections will be stirred when our minds understand the truths of this great gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we embark on this little series We'll be considering each verse of the song, His Robes for Mine, in a single sermon. And then give a fifth message on the chorus. In each message, I want to include Chris Anderson who wrote this, his own statement about the verse and chorus. Here's what he had to say about verse 1. The four verses focus on four major themes included in the doctrine of justification. Verse 1 addresses the hymn's overriding theme of the great exchange. Jesus Christ was made sin for us in order that we might be declared righteous in Him. The great doctrine of imputed righteousness and unrighteousness grows out, a number, out of a number of wondrous texts, and he lists some there, and he says, and is often pictured in Scripture by the exchange of garments, hence the theme of the song. His robes for mine. And so we begin where the song begins with the great exchange. That great exchange is the imputation of the sins of men, women, and children to Christ and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to all who believe. Now the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin for everyone who believes. His sacrifice is of infinite value. Bridges and Bevington, I mentioned their book a little while ago, said concerning the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28, that we are sealed with the Father's own oath and superseding the law, Christ's superior priesthood and superior sacrifice are the basis of His superior atonement, the great atonement. In his Melchizedek priesthood, the sinless Jesus, as the ever-living high priest, offers a sacrifice so meritorious and complete that it requires no repetition. It results in a single atonement of unimaginable cost, infinite value, and inexhaustible validity. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is the atonement for sin for all ages. The blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy what needed to be done, only the sacrifice of Christ. And so it is the atonement for all the ages. Through that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone, we are reconciled to God. Now consider the words of 2 Corinthians 5. We've already read verses 16 to 21, so let's just look at verse 21. Just verse 21. This is the theme 
verse of that book, and it's really the theme verse of the song, His Robes for Mine. Verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We'll not deal thoroughly with any but this last verse in this section that we read, but it'll be good to point out that in that reconciliation that is spoken of previously, every aspect of that is taken at God's initiative. God is the one who initiates reconciliation. God is the one who provides the means of reconciliation. God is the one who finishes off reconciliation. The Lord is the one who reconciles us to Himself. Yes, we are called out to be reconciled unto God, but it is God who does the reconciling. Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. He reconciles us to Himself. And note that the word world here cannot mean every single individual in the world because then all men would be saved and there would be no need for the ministry of reconciliation. World here means all men without distinction. That is, without distinction between nations, tribes, ethnic groups, etc. Not all men without exception. Only when we understand the word in that way can we avoid the heretical error of universalism. So it's not all men without exception. It is all men without distinction. And by the way, that was a major issue when Paul wrote to a Gentile culture. There was the danger early on in the church for everyone to think that the church was Jewish. And the Apostle Paul is basically reminding the people in Corinth that the church is not just Jewish. I fear that in our day, it's almost turned back the other way and we are almost averse to think of the church being Jewish at all. God has been revealing Himself to the Gentiles since the day of Christ and and he had presented himself to the Jews primarily before that. And, and it's almost as though in this day and age, people think, you know, we, we, the Jews had their time and now they're, they're done away with. And so there are some people who don't think there ought to be any evangelistic outreach to Jewish people. Well, I'm thankful that's not the case. Just as I'm thankful that it wasn't in God's plan to hide the truth of His Son from the Gentiles forever. If that were the case, by and large, none of us would be here. In other words, this is a gospel that, that can redeem any person of any ethnicity, any religious background whatsoever. Now again, the theme verse for Bridges and Bevington's book on the Great Exchange is this very verse. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's consider this work of God from the standpoint of three things. Motive. Why did God do this? Well, we have the motive given to us here. And then we have His method. And finally, we see His majesty. So that's very simple. We're going to look at it from the standpoint of motive, method, and majesty. We begin with the motive. God did what He did for our reconciliation for our sake. Look at it very carefully there. Verse 21, for our sake He made Him to be sinned. God did what He did. His motivation, perhaps not in the whole, because His great motivation is always to glorify Himself, but His motivation here was for our sake. Several years ago, I heard a man preach that God saved us from a position of neutrality. 
He said basically that God took someone who was nothing and made something out of him. And while I do not think that this individual was intentionally underestimating his or our evil, in fact, he was trying to speak very humbly from his perspective, his statement really isn't correct. God, when he saves us, does not take someone who is nothing and make that person into something. What God does, rather, is take one who is something, and that is a terrible, sinful rebel against Him, and makes that person into something completely different, a child of God, one who can please God, and has His life flowing through His veins. In other words... For us to understand more of the wonder of this great exchange, it is necessary that we see ourselves for who we are or were. We need to see ourselves in light of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, for example. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says here, we were dead in our sins and chose ever and always to follow after the world, the devil, and our own fleshly desires. That's who we were. And that's who you are if you do not know Christ. You live to yourself. You follow the pattern of this world. You follow after the desires of the flesh. That's what all unbelievers do. That's what I did until the Lord reached down into my life and brought me to Christ. And that's what you did before the Lord reached into your life and brought you to Christ. And if you do not know Him, that's what you do even as we sit here. We were dead. We followed that which was evil. The reality is we were not in a neutral position before God. We were in a very negative position. The position of every man, woman, and child who remains outside of Christ is that those individuals are in a negative position. Those individuals are at enmity with Him. They are His enemies. All who are lost are rebels against the holy God. Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, those who repent of sin and believe on Jesus Christ have been made to be at peace with God. It implies that prior to our salvation, we were His enemies. We were at war with Him. And so we're left to wonder. How could a holy God love a sinner like me? The wonder of God's work of reconciliation is rightly seen only against the backdrop of the reality of our sinful rebellion against Him. The only way you will ever have any kind of a comprehension of the grace of God the only way you'll ever have any kind of a comprehension of the wonder of the work of God in bringing you to faith is when you realize, when you recognize, when you have ever before you that black backdrop of the reality of your sinful rebellion against Him. Keep in mind that throughout the Word of God, sinful man is viewed as God's enemy. Consider these passages, and as you do so, remember the opening words of this song, His Robes for Mine, O Wonderful Exchange. Who was the true me prior to salvation? Who is the true you if you have not come to Christ? Scripture couldn't be clearer. James 4.4 4. 
you adulterous people? Do you not know that friendship with the world is in enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As you read that verse in light of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 2, that is that we were all guilty of walking according to the course of this world, we, we conclude that prior to salvation we were enemies. Romans 5, verse 10, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We were His enemies. Romans 8, 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There was nothing you could do. There was nothing I could do. Absolutely nothing to please God prior to coming to faith in Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22 tells us this. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Can't be made any more clear than that, can it? All those who are not in Christ through faith remain God's enemies. We all once hated God, rebelled against Him, sought our pleasures, our own pleasures, and like our forefather Adam, we sought to enthrone self and dethrone God. And wonder of wonders, for our sake, for whose sake? Talk about a motley crew. For the sake of a bunch of sinners. For the sake of a bunch of people who did not deserve any gift from God at all. From, for the sake of people who were in rebellion against Him. For the sake of people who hated Him. For your sake. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. His robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange that is. What a truly great exchange that we should gain a perfect righteousness, not our own, in the place of our wickedness, which was assessed to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was for our sake that Christ paid this penalty. That was His motive. For our sake. Having considered the motive, what about the method? What did God have to do? God did what He did as a judge with the ability to declare one condemned or justified. God is the judge. He had the ability to condemn or to justify. We're committed to the biblical teaching of a forensic justification. God sitting on His judgment bench declaring us right in the righteousness of Christ. So on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus and His righteousness placed upon us through faith, He declared us not guilty of sin and declares Christ or punished Christ as though He was a sinner. Christ never committed sin. Christ is not a sinner, but God treated him as though he were. And this is solely and purely a work of grace from God for the sake of sinners. The great exchange is, in a sense, a double imputation. We should take them in order in which they are spoken of in the verse of the song before us and in the verse of Scripture before us. Interestingly, Anderson, when he wrote this song, used the same order. Note again the words of the song, His robes for mine, O wonderful exchange. And then the next line, Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in His righteousness, I'm justified. 
in Christ I live, for in my place he died. It is the words, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage, that express the biblical truth found in the words, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. You see the connection there? Note carefully that Jesus was not made a sinner, he was made to be sin. The wording is important because even in the act of sacrificing himself for sin, Jesus never became a sinner. One writer emphasizes the fact that Jesus was made to be sin for us, saying God did this, and he did it for our sake out of his infinite love. The sinless Christ was made to be sin, a demonstration of the very essence of God's imputation. He counted Christ a sinner so that he could count us righteous when we come to him in faith. Our transgressions were imputed to the sinless Son of God and His suffering on our behalf is immeasurable. Again, Bridges and Bevington say, just as we are made specifically aware of our guilt, Jesus was fully conscious of that unimaginable load of sin. Jesus being made sin encompassed every consequence of sin, including the unthinkable, the separation that shocked him into crying out from the cross with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, one of the things we don't often think about when we read those words is that God had every right to forsake me. There was nothing about me that God should not have forsaken. But rather than forsake me, God forsook Christ for me. And that's true of you if you know Christ. God forsook His own Son for you, for your sake. What love that Christ should take upon Himself our sin and die for us. What love from the Father for God so loved the world. It is truly a Trinitarian love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all love the believer. Consider what one author said concerning the love of God in these words. The Father does not love His people strictly on the grounds that Jesus died for them. Rather, Jesus died for His people because the Father loved Him. In this sense, then, the love of God is not the result of Christ's death, but rather its cause. I love that statement. The love of God is not the result of Christ's death. It is the cause of Christ's death. It is because God so loved the world that He gave His Son to be sacrificed on the cross. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And praise be to the Almighty. Christ has laid down his life for his people. He has laid down his life for his people. He bore our judgment on Calvary's tree. Not only was our sin placed upon Christ, but through faith in him, his righteousness is placed upon us. This Anderson speaks to in the next phrase when he said, draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. I don't know about you, but I get the impression Chris Anderson read this verse once or twice before he wrote the song. Because everything he said came straight out of this verse. Paul's words... Or he words the truth in this way, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he is in righteousness, we become in the eyes of God who imputes his righteousness to us. What he is in righteousness, we become in the eyes of God when his righteousness is imputed to us. 
just how drastic is this work of imputation? Well, notice what the apostle said just prior to verse 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. The prophet Isaiah said, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Note the idea of imputation was not new when Paul wrote because that had been prophesied some 700 years prior to the first advent of Christ. Isaiah spoke of the imputation even then. And Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Not my righteousness. I have no righteousness to claim before God. I have no merit to claim before the Almighty. It is Christ's righteousness. It is the righteousness of the branch. The people will not be called righteous in and of themselves, but they will be righteous because the Lord is their righteousness. And Paul says in Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Bridges and Bevington rightly conclude the offense is removed when the personal presence of sin and its consequences is acknowledged, when the God-appointed sin-bearer is believed and treasured, and when his atoning suffering and death on behalf of undeserving sinners is embraced, resulting in forgiveness, redemption, imputed righteousness, and reconciliation. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Christ made that reconciliation possible when He took upon Himself our sin and when our righteousness can be placed upon, or, or Christ's righteousness can be placed upon us by His Father. We who were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When the Father looks at you, if you know Jesus, He doesn't see your sin. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ, His Son. That's the great exchange. Why would I not want to trade His robes for mine? And so in this first verse of this song, Chris Anderson speaks to the fact that my sin my evil, my rebellion, my turning away from God was placed upon Christ. He bore that. He bore the judgment, the penalty for that. An infinite penalty that only one who was infinite could bear. He suffered our hell for us. He bore the wrath of God. Why? We were sinners. We were rebels. We were eternally evil. So much so that we deserved hell for all eternity and yet for our sake. Out of pure unadulterated, unimaginable, inexpressible love. He bore our sin so that we might have His righteousness placed upon us so that His glorious holy, perfect robe of righteousness could be draped upon us. This is the greatest exchange imaginable. His robes for mine. 
And so we've looked at the motive. He did it for us. And we've looked at the method. Christ bearing our sins so that we could have His righteousness placed on us. And now I want to briefly consider the majesty of His work. Not that we haven't in some ways already done that. This is a majestic work. This is a work for which we will be glorifying Him throughout eternity. Note that God did what He did in reconciliation in order to manifest His great mercy, love, and grace. The text simply reads, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The work of reconciliation is a work of mercy, love, and grace. It is God's work for us. It is God's work for evil men and women. It is God's work for undeserving sinners. And it is His work of love. We read in verses 18 through 19, if you want to look back there, just verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself not counting their righteous or their trespasses against them not counting our trespasses against us from the standpoint of the sinner it's all of grace it is all of grace there's not one ounce of merit in my life or yours it is all of grace it is god's work for us There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. From the standpoint of God, it's a work that adds absolutely nothing to His innate greatness or goodness or glory. You cannot add glory to the One who is all-glorious. You cannot add greatness to the One who is infinitely great. And so His innate goodness and glory and greatness gains nothing. By the way, that makes His work of grace all the greater. I mean, I can make the argument that when He got me, He got a worthless speck of dust. That when it dies, we'll go back to dust. That's it. That's it. There's nothing. But in that, though we cannot add to any of His innate glory or greatness or goodness or love, it does cause us to ascribe glory to Him, does it not? Anderson ends the first verse of his robes for mine with the following statement, In Christ I live, for in my place He died. That is a simple, personalized summary of the verse. In Christ I live, for in my place He died. Again, Bridges and Bevington rightly exult in this great work of reconciliation when they say this. The best, highest good of the gospel is that we have God Himself. There is no other blessing higher or better or more costly than that. Just think of it. Hell-deserving sinners safely in the very presence of an infinitely holy God and more than safe, welcomed. By the way, in his ropes for mine, Anderson will get to that welcome to part two, won't he? And more than welcomed, cherished by the most amazing, awesome, creative, fascinating, satisfying, desirable, and delightful being in the universe. 
since I couldn't say it any better than Bridges and Bevington, I decided I'd just quote that. What a, what a statement. And what a thought that we are welcomed and cherished by the most amazing, awesome, creative, fascinating, satisfying, desirable, and delightful being in the universe. By God himself. By the one who created everything. And created it good, and then we ruined it. With man's sin, we brought it, we marred it. You know, I went out on the front porch this morning and just looked because I wanted to see, I wanted to see what it looked like when the ground was wet. <laughs> it's been a while. And through the years, in light of the loss of some loved ones, my wife had been given a couple of roses, one knockout roses, one yellow and one red, and they're kind of at the end of the house, one on each end. And in this heat and drought had really made them look bad. You say, roses? How can roses look bad? Yeah. Roses are beautiful. Not when they're dying. Not when the heat has turned most of the leaves brown. The only reason those roses are not beautiful, the only reasons you get pricked by thorns, even when they are beautiful, by the way, is because of the fall of man. We marred this earth. We marred this place that God had created good. And in spite of that, in spite of who we are, in spite of what we are, God in His mercy and love and grace poured out His blessing upon us in His Son. He put His wrath upon Christ and Christ places His righteousness upon us. Christ Jesus our Lord was righteous. Perfectly so. And yet He had our sin imputed to Him and bore our punishment. We who are sinners and rebels against God, enemies of our Creator, are through and in Christ forgiven. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we become partakers of this great exchange. And so I end this morning with that first phrase, I can't end it any better. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful. Oh, how wonderful exchange. Let's pray. Some of you perhaps are here and you've never trusted Christ. This most wonderful one. This one who bore your punishment. Turn from sin and come to faith in Him. See His grace and love poured out on Calvary's tree. And trust Him. Believers, I hope you'll never sing the first verse of that song again the same way that we sang before we came here today. Chalked with meaning straight out of the Word of God. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Father, use your Word to change us. Reach down into this congregation today and by your grace draw men and women and young people to Christ if they know him not. And Lord, may our worship never be the same.
when we sing. May we think about what we sing. And may you be pleased with our worship, for it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.